Well, why don't you find your, in your Bibles the book of Luke. We're in chapter 5 today. Talking about Jesus as a marginalized people magnet. People that were marginalized were drawn to Jesus almost compulsively. Uh, to, to be marginalized is to be a person that others treat as insignificant or peripheral. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have some friends here, um, Keystone, that are from India. I used to own the motel across the street. Um, have sold that and moved you know, down Delaware now. They come here occasionally, and um, we just baptized uh, Indira a couple of weeks ago. They grew, both grew up in India, and uh, if you know anything about India, you know they have a, a what they call a caste system, C-A-S-T-E. That means, uh, depending on who your family is, you either have a high standing in society or a low standing in society. There's four main uh, categories in the caste, although subdivisions underneath them to some degree, but uh, the Brahmins are the top. And in 1950, India got uh, independence from Great Britain, and the caste system was outlawed. It has a long, long history in India. But outlawing something and, and actually having it go away are two different things. And still to this day, if you're a Brahmin, and the Brahmins would have been from the priestly caste, if you had families, uh, family members that would have been Hindu priests, um, you still have the, uh, you, you have the most money, you have the most clout, the most power, you have the best employment opportunities if you're a Brahmin. And then it works down from there. You have government officials and warriors and on down to the tradesmen and then the, uh, the laboring class. But beneath the laboring class is someone who, who's not in the caste. You know the word outcast? That's what it means. They're outside the caste. So the Dalits, the D-A-L-I-T, the Dalits or the untouchables are outside of the caste system. They're, they're just regarded as something less than human. And so they do, they do all the work that nobody else will do. They unclog the sewer drains. They clean human feces off the street. Uh, they skin dead cows. You know, in the Hindu system, cows are sacred. And so to, to skin a dead one is like... there's. It's disgusting, one, and two, it's, it's, it's contaminating. And so these people will do all these kinds of things, and people still, even though the, the caste system is supposedly outlawed, they, they will still treat people like that as less than human. And so, for example, a dollop might go to a merchant and try to buy something, and, and the merchant would not take the money from them. They have to put the money on the counter, and then the merchant picks it up because they don't want to be touching the money at the same time a, a dollop is. Uh, these people are barred from many Hindu temples yet today, um, even churches. Um, <clears throat> some churches, the well-to-do or the upper caste people go down one road to get to the church, and the other people, Dalits and, or the lower caste, have to go, use a different road. Uh, the Dalits are not allowed to uh, be in certain homes. They're not allowed to sit with certain people. They won't eat with them. They're barred from public wells. It's not great to be a Dalit in India. Now, I, w- I want us to think this morning as we um, look at this text about our own culture and more specifically about our own lives and our perception about certain people, categories of people. Uh, we all have people we don't like because maybe they, um, and some individual hurt us or offended us. But I want to think, have us think this morning about groups of people that we, we marginalize and our attitude toward them and why that might be and whether or not 
uh, that reflects uh, our Savior or that that reflects something else. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. Let me read this and then I'll pray before we have some conversation about it. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. And so Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Father, my um, heart is so easily um, lured into thinking about people the way other people around me think about people. Because I'm exposed to their opinions and to their um, ideologies and to their prejudices and bigotries so much more than I'm exposed to your kind of grace and mercy. Bombarded by words from peers, from words from neighbors, words in the voices of the culture through the media and through the television and advertisements and the internet. And if I listen to the majority voices, I hear voices that hate and despise and look down on people because they have this opinion or because they um, hold to well, they like these kind of people and don't like these kind of people. And, <clears throat> and I become the kind of person that Jesus condemned. And we all are prone to so many voices. And I pray for these moments this morning that we would hear your voice well. And it would begin to shape and mold and corral and take the edge off of how we think about certain other people. And I pray that the Holy Spirit might be unleashed this morning to have his way in my heart and in all of our hearts and that conversely the enemy who is um, so regularly behind those other voices that he might be silenced he might be bound for your honor and glory and our good in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. So a couple of questions. Who would you not want to sit down and eat with? Who don't you like? Who are the people that you find yourself so quick and ready to marginalize? Now we're going to look at those people, and we're going to use that uh, 
use that pronoun for people that we're not really comfortable with or that we have kind of a um, uh, an op oppositional attitude toward. Those people, we're going to look at how Jesus looked at those people and then look at how the Pharisees looked at those people and then try to put ourselves into a um, right assessment about where we fall and, and some thoughts regarding that. So <clears throat> Jesus, we see the setting. Jesus is talking with um, a tax collector, which apparently is a no-no. The Pharisees are critical of him about that. And we don't have much information to go on here. We, we cross-reference to the other Gospels. But uh, we realize that apparently the tax collector is a bad guy in the eyes of the Pharisees and the people of that day. He's apparently a ba bad guy. Now, if you have ever been audited by the IRS, you probably share that sentiment. Um, but these guys were not the kind of typical IRS guy. I mean, IRS guy gets paid a salary, he does a job. He's supposed to have um, restrictions on what he can and can't do in an audit and so forth. <clears throat> These guys were not like that. And it's interesting, you find the tax collector surfacing again and again and again in the gospel accounts. Um, Jesus often uses a tax collector as a teaching point because he was universally despised and hated by uh, the Jews. <clears throat> tax collector in those days... Uh, would have been seen uh, in a negative light for a couple of reasons. One, he was a collaborator with the enemy. Now, when we went into Iraq, our military went into Iraq, they hired a lot of Iraqis to serve as translators for units, uh, as well as not just military, but people that were there serving civil functions from the U.S. as well. And it was not unusual for them to be targeted by their neighbors and threatened with death. And many translators ended up being brought to the U.S. because it was the only place that was safe for them. Their families relocated here. Others died and were killed because they were collaborators. Because the Iraqi, many Iraqis did not see us as a liberating force that we kind of thought we were. But they saw us as an occupying force. And we were there a long time, so it's kind of understandable. That's how the tax collector would have been seen. He was a collaborator with an occupying force. The Roman Empire was ruling over uh, Palestine. And so to cooperate with the Roman government and collect their taxes meant you were, you were essentially a traitor. Not only were you a traitor, but you were, you were someone who um, took advantage of your own people. Because these would have been Jews in Palestine uh, getting these tax collecting jobs. And Levi was a, he was a Jewish person. What you would do if Rome would put out forbids uh, ta tax collecting uh, jobs. And so you might bid along with four other people and your bid was the highest. So you, the bids might be I'll collect $6,000 or I'll collect the $8,000 or collect um, $9,600 a year. But your bid's the winning bid because you bid $12,000. you are basically telling Rome I will bring you more tax dollars than these other guys would. And so the... the um, uh, the job went to the highest bidder. So you're going, to, you're going to work your own people over for this occupying force. And on top of that, you can gouge the people that you're taxing uh, for any additional revenue that you can then pocket. And so there really was, there were no parameters, there were no laws that would keep you from, uh, you know, fleecing the sheep. 
And so tax collectors became very, very wealthy. They didn't have a lot of friends in the community, except for other tax collectors, but they became very wealthy. Jesus seemed to have had a soft spot for these tax collectors. Remember a guy named Zacchaeus? Short guy, couldn't see Jesus, climbed a tree. And Jesus noticed him and he said, I want to come have lunch with you. He goes have lunch with him. And we, we don't have the full story fleshed out in scripture, but apparently um, God got a hold of Zacchaeus' life at lunch and he says, I'm going to go back to all the people that I've taxed and I'm going to reimburse them up to four times what I've fleeced uh, from them. You might remember a story that Jesus told, a parable, Luke 18, down at the temple where a guy over here is praying, a guy over here is praying. This guy's a Pharisee. By the way, the Pharisees were, the Pharisees were kind of the evangelicals of their day. Read the scriptures, knew the scriptures, believed the scriptures, tried to live out the scriptures. They were critical of the uh, Sadducees who didn't take the scripture at face value. Pharisees were scrupulous. They even had laws about the laws, and so they, they were trying to do what God wanted them to do. But in the process, they became self-righteous. So down at the temple, the story Jesus tells about the Pharisee over here, uh, his prayer is really a brag session. I thank you, God, that I'm not like that tax collector over there. I thank you, God, that I give you a tenth of everything that I own, and I thank you that I'm a, a good person, and I don't commit adultery, and I don't do all those bad things that guys like that do. And meanwhile, over here's a tax collector beating on his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus had a soft spot in his heart for tax collectors because he knew that in the dark of their nights, they knew how bad off they were before God. No wonder the Pharisees are looking at Jesus and saying, what is wrong with you? This is the worst of the worst of the worst in our culture. And you somehow having a party with them? Oh, not just having a party with them. You're recruiting them to your band? Jesus says to Levi, by the way, this guy is Matthew, the same guy that wrote the first gospel account. Two names, Levi and Matthew. And Jesus says, come follow me. And he does. Leaves his toll booth and goes and follows Jesus. I guess didn't make a phone call to his supervisor saying, hey, I quit. Just walked off the job. Man, what kind of effect did Jesus have in this man's life? Those people seem to be drawn to Jesus. Prostitutes. Luke chapter 7 couple chapters away talks about a woman that came to see jesus verse 37 certain immoral woman from the city we don't have to use your imagination to figure out what was her immorality so it's usually just a euphemism for a woman who's either a prostitute or who is an unfaithful wife who jumps from bed to bed to bed and she shows up and she starts um Weeping, She's washing Jesus' feet with her tears. She's drying her, his feet with her hair. She puts perfume on his feet. And again, Pharisees are having a heyday with Jesus. I can't, I can't believe you let this woman touch you. What 
when I read these stories, I, I, you know, there's always, it's Jesus and it's Pharisees. Jesus and the Pharisees. And they have a radical different point of view. Jesus, Pharisees. And I read the story and I, I, I look at my life and say, which camp would I have been in that day? Oh, no. Which camp am I in today? And, and Jesus looks, looks around at his critics that day with this woman there. And he says, I love how he starts. It's so innocent. He says uh, <clears throat> to the Pharisee who had invited him to the house, um, I have something to say to you. <laughs> I have something to say to you. And Simon has no clue what's about to come. And he goes, okay, go ahead and, and lay it on me. And then Jesus tells a story about um, two people that were received loans. And neither of them could repay him. And so the man who had given the loans out forgave them both, canceling their debts. And he asks, who do you think of these two debtors, who do you think loved the man who forgave their loan more? And Simon still, Simon was the Pharisee that day. Simon still doesn't know what the point is. It's like, well, I guess the person who was forgiven the larger debt. That's right. And then he goes on to talk about this woman and contrast her conduct that day with Simon's conduct that day. And he said, when I got to your house and I have dusty feet, open sandals, walking on roads that donkeys poop on, and you didn't even so much as offer me water to clean my feet. Now, by the way, in the Middle Eastern context, that was a no-no. You provided water. You provided a servant to clean the feet of your guests. And if you didn't have a servant, you cleaned the feet of your guests. And Jesus said, you didn't even offer me water, and yet here's this woman washing my feet with her tears. When I got to your house, you didn't greet me with a kiss. Another no-no, Middle Eastern hospitality. And yet here's this woman, she's kissing my feet. When I got to your house, you didn't provide any olive oil to put on my head. To kind of cleanse away the road grime. And just to offer a, a token of your honor for me. And yet this woman has been anointing my feet with perfume. He says, this woman, it's true, she has many, many sins. But she's been forgiven of them, those many, many sins. Do you see why apparently she has greater gratitude than you do? Because in your mind, you don't think you have all that many sins to be forgiven of. There's a reason that Jesus closes out this section with Levi and the criticism by saying it's not healthy people that need a doctor. It's sick people that need a doctor. We could go on and on talking about all the marginalized people that showed up at Jesus' doorstep, that came into the buildings where he was at, that sought him out. The lepers the first identified healing was of a leper. You know, if you were a leper in Israel, and we're not really sure if it was always leprosy, what we call Hansen's disease today. It could, could have been a multitude of skin diseases. But Israel understood from the law of Moses 
that skin diseases were usually contagious. And so if you, were, if you had one, you were kept outside of the camp. You were kept outside of the city until you were pronounced clean by the priests. They didn't have uh, much of what way of doctors in those days, what we would consider doctors. And so you would look for the thing to go away. The religious leader of the community would say, okay, you're, you're clean or you're not clean. You can either come back to the town or you can't come back to the town. And if you were a leper in Jesus' day and you had family members, you couldn't even get within six feet of them. And yet Jesus, they, Jesus would let them walk up to them, up to him. And he'd, he'd put his hands on them, and he, he would heal them. I mean, we could go on and on. The people that were ostracized were welcomed to Jesus. The whole discussion about women. They would follow him. They would support him. And they were given the privilege of being the first witnesses after the resurrection. Common prayer of a Jewish man in Jesus' day was, God, thank you that you didn't make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And all these people felt, felt like there was, there was something that Jesus was conveying by his words and his conduct that, that the door was wide open to him. And Pharisees were trying to restrict the doors. They're closing the back doors. We, we have one door open here for you, and, and if, you, if you want to come through this door, you have to look a certain way, you have to be a certain way, you have to be of a certain type and, and not be of another certain type. Because we don't want any of those people in our midst. Back to Luke 5, beginning of verse 30. <clears throat> Pharisees and their teacher, the teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with such scum? Now, uh, the NLT puts such scum in there. That's not the original text says tax collectors and sinners. But here's what the NLT was going for, and I think it was a good instinct. Because in our day, we don't really, really have the kind of antipathy, uh, hostility toward tax collectors that they did in those days. The NLT wants us to feel the attitude and the opinion of the Pharisees, and that is that these folks were all scum. Now, who's your scum? <laughs> we all have them. Are they stupid people? Stupid people who are, are people who have opinions that are different from yours and mine. Witness the recent national election. Now, it wasn't just, I've watched a lot of elections in my time, and they're usually pretty rancorous, but this was, of a, this was a cut above or cut below. Not just between the candidates, but the supporters of particular candidates. And it hasn't stopped. You follow social media at all, it ain't pretty out there. Of people thinking about and speaking about people who voted for a candidate different than they did. They're stupid people. They view this this way. Can't believe they view things like that. Or people who mishandle money. If you have your act together financially, 
Isn't it easy to look down on people that you don't think handle money the way they should? Even though we may not know the whole story, what's going on in their lives. Just kind of write them off. Here's one. How we think about people who have a different opinion from ours regarding the Second Amendment. Isn't that ugly? So if you're one that says, uh, I want to conceal and carry, and uh, the people who don't think like that are somehow deficient, or if you're on the other side of the coin, and you think all gun owners and carriers are, they just want to kill school children, and every time we have a school shooting, we blame that on the people that want to conceal and carry. I'm just trying to think of things that, kind of betray our enmity and hostility toward people that aren't like us. Stupid people. Or dangerous people. We have a particular attitude toward criminals and we think, wow, how did they... I would never do what they did. You ever think that when you read in the newspaper? You hear something on the news, you read something on the internet... I would never do that. You are wrong. Every one of us has the capacity to do something horrific that today we wouldn't consider doing. Why? Because you and I are just garden variety sinners, brothers and sisters. No better, no worse. See, I think what Jesus wants us, wants us to get to is a great leveling, level ground before the cross. You know, at the foot of the cross, there's not one, um, there's a plateau over here where it's flat and it's eight foot to the top of the cross. And over here, oh, over here is a, a little hill, five foot, where some of the purest of us get to go. And it's only five foot to the top of that cross. Dangerous people. Oh, here's one. We've been talking about off and on. We're going to talk about next month again. Immigrants and refugees. Now, let's just put away public policy for a minute. Not an issue of public policy when we're talking about Christ followers. It's an issue of how do we treat people who are here, don't speak our language, and come from this country, maybe aren't assimilating well, but their kids go to school with our kids, and they're getting jobs at our workplaces, and they're coming across the border and stealing jobs from Americans. As a Christ follower, how do we think about them? People from other faiths or no faiths. Again, in my my reading stuff on social media, I'm thinking, sometimes I read stuff by people I know that are believers, and I'm thinking, how in the world are we ever going to reach lost people who have no faith or have a different faith when we project this animosity, this hostility, this, well, they call it hatred. Maybe it is. Maybe the marginalized people in our lives are simply people who sin differently than we do. And 
we, again, we look at them, I'd never be like that. I'd never do that. How about the addicts? I, um, I hardly ever drink alcohol. I could probably count on one hand the drinks I've had in the last 20 years. Two hands at least. Sometimes a wedding, champagne. Um, I don't think I've ever had a to- one complete beer in my life. Now some of that's choice because of my role and I do feel the um, keenness of Romans 14 and 15 and not being a stumbling block to others. But I'll be honest, a lot of it is I don't like alcohol. Why you would spend money on that is just beyond me. just don't like the taste. So it's easy for me to look at somebody who struggles with alcohol and say, I, what is wrong with you? I never smoked a joint. I never did a tab of acid. I never tried heroin. I'd never tried any drug. I was a young man. And my buddies were doing this stuff. And I'm like, I, I, see the, I see the dark light at the end of that tunnel, the disaster that that can lead to. I don't want any parts of that. Not interested. So I don't have the temptation, and it's not a big deal for me. And easy to be marginalized people who cannot, cannot, cannot seem to kick that. What about the people that struggle with same-sex attraction? You're like, well, I don't, I don't, see, I don't understand that. That's just dumb. And, and how, do, how do followers of Jesus Christ help people who have those kinds of struggles if we just write them off? That's stupid. That's just stupid. I can't understand why that's a problem for you. Or people who are greedy. Or here's one that's hot today, people who are pedophiles. It seems like no matter where we land... Um, conservative, liberal, moderate, politically, socially. This is one evil, one sin that we can all wrap our arms around and join hands and sing kumbaya about. So we despise the pedophile. Who is also made in the image of God. You see, fundamentally, we... We, we, we have to get to the point where we are able to look at not only other people, but the sins other people commit and or struggle with and differently than we tend to. And our, we, our tendency is to level different categories certain ways. And Jesus says, you're, you're all sinners. And if you don't get that, then what I have come to bring to you doesn't matter to you. Because you don't need what I'm bringing. There was an arrogance here on the part of the Pharisees that says they looked at, uh, they, they looked at this tax collect, these tax collectors and the other people, the riffraff that Jesus was eating with, and they're like, we're better than they are. And you're a Jewish rabbi. You should be better than they are. And Jesus is saying, well, actually, you're not any better than they are. 
Look, I didn't come to help people that think they don't need me, who think that they are righteous in and of their own performance. I came to help people that recognize I'm a train wreck and you're my only hope. In other words, Jesus came as a doctor, but listen, you, you, you wives, let me, let me um, ask you a question, and, and I mean it to have you raise your hand to answer this. How many of you wives have a terrible time persuading your husbands to go to the doctor? Would you put up your hands? That's better than I thought. So I'm going to give you some insight, ladies. Here's why that is. Men believe that as long as they don't go to the doctor, they're okay. But if they go to the doctor, he's going to find something wrong with them. And they don't want to risk that. So they don't go. And they are happy as a clam in their ignorance. If I'm not sick, I don't need a doctor. If you're not sinful... You don't need a savior. Only sinners need the doctor's cure. Toby Sumter in his book, Blood-Bought World, says, Why do we try to cover our sin with fig leaves? His answer, because we don't believe in God's grace. In other words, his argument is that um, we're going to hide our bad stuff. Because we really don't think God's grace stretches broadly enough to cover our bad stuff. I want to take his remark one step further. When it comes to how we marginalize people, can marginalize people, do we really believe that God's grace is big enough to cover their problems? Is, is, is grace extend as far as God says it extends or does it extend as far as we might think it extends? Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Does does our dislike for certain kinds of people betray that not only do we not believe in God's grace for ourselves, but for others. I mean, surely God's not going to forgive their awful opinions, their great immoralities, or their following of a false religion. I want to take you in closing to a passage in First Peter. I'm sorry, Second Peter. <clears throat> Beginning at verse 5. Uh, sorry, Second Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 5. Now, he, uh, Peter has been saying that God's given believers everything we need for living a, a godly life. He's given us great and precious promises. And then he says in verse 5, In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a moral excellence with... Uh, I'm sorry, supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness, 
and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly, brotherly affection with love for everyone. Now, he means here love for other believers. But I think based on what he is about to say, it is also appropriate to say this, there is an application of this toward all people, not just other believers. Godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way, in other words, that that whole list of spiritual development ending up with uh, a love for everyone, those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. In other words, the, the, the foundation from which or on which we have a right regard and a right love for other people is ultimately built on the knowledge that we are a sinful train wreck ourselves and only by the grace of God through Christ do we have hope. And when we forget that, then we can look at other people and say, you're not as good as I am. I'm mad at you. I'm going to write all this horrific stuff about people like you on Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere. Because I'm better than you. I mean, really, anytime we marginalize people, we're essentially conveying to them, I'm better than you. And Jesus says, no, you're not. That's why I came to die for you too. And so it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the great cure, not only for our own sins, but for our marginalization of other people. Because when we get the gospel, and the, the root of the gospel is, I am a sinner. The, the good news is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, but the root of that gospel, the only need for that gospel is, I'm a sinner. And when I get that, Everything else changes about how I think about you and you and you and you and you. Let me pray for us. And before I do, I want you to just give some, uh, a moment to your own prejudices, your own animosities towards groups of people. And I want you to be honest and confess that before God and tell him, by your grace, I will extend your grace to those. Just do that. Father, nothing is hidden from you. Every thought, every attitude, every harsh, harsh word, every dismissal of a certain kind of person, every time we go out of our way to avoid kind of person, neglect to offer Christian friendship. It is a blow to the gospel. 
And you know my heart, you know each of our hearts. And we pray for the flood of the Holy Spirit to wash away the enmity and replace it with gospel grace, gospel love, and an eye singled out to your glory and other people's good. In Jesus' name.